Now, we are in to now, of course, as we had this final week of August, the return to school after Labor Day. Uh, 2014, it started uh, 2012, actually. So this is our third year of kids going back to school after Labor Day. There was a time in this province between registration and other things going on, kids could start at some point in August. No one was too sure when. And it all involved the days of instruction in a year. During the 2011 election, then-candidate and Premier Brad Wall said if he were re-elected, which he was, in fact, in a larger majority than he had before, he would change the school calendar to always start the Tuesday after Labor Day. Next door in Manitoba, they've done that for years, and the Premier invoked that along with some other areas. But at the time, the Teachers Union, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation, was very upset by it. But I thought when I saw this guy coming through town, we would spend the remaining hour of the show today with Michael Zwagstra. Michael is a school teacher in Manitoba, writes with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, and he did a workshop conference recently in Saskatchewan that has spawned a new publication called The Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. That's being rolled out in the next few weeks, and we find Michael Zwagstra back in Saskatchewan today. Good to have you back. Well, good to be with you, John. Do I call you the pride of Yorkton or Yorkton expat, or what's the label? Well, I, I'm certainly a graduate of Yorkton Regional High School, so I have many fond memories of my time in Yorkton. Now, tell me about, uh, you have been teaching for years in Manitoba. When your province went to that Tuesday after Labor Day thing, was it a, a controversial issue at all? Uh, it really wasn't. Uh, in fact, uh, teacher, the teachers' union in Manitoba supported the change. And uh, uh, the reason they supported the change is that they, uh, the government actually reduced the uh, total number of, uh, of school days. Manitoba used to have one of the longest school years, uh, 200 days, and then that was reduced to a floating 193 to 197 days. So uh, when it was rolled out, uh, there was very little controversy. It was supported by the teachers' union, and that's what we've had for at least the last 12 years. This new publication that is coming out soon, and you're going to give us a bit of a preview of it, called The Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan, began actually when you were here last time, a few months ago, you were speaking to a conference on rural education. And you said there was a very clear line of demarcation even in the room as you spoke. Uh, who liked it, who didn't like it? Well, to, uh, to put it very simply, the uh, the trustees and parent council representatives really liked my presentation. They appreciated what I had to say about common sense and report cards and keeping percentages on them and communicating clearly with parents. Uh, however, uh, superintendents, uh, curriculum consultants who were in the audience did not like my presentation, and I got to witness some, some heated discussions between trustees and their own superintendent in some cases uh, immediately after my presentation. It was a very sharp divide. Why is that? Well, the uh, because I was challenging an ideology that has taken hold in uh, in the school system and many people's careers, particularly curriculum consultants and the people who lead school boards and education departments, their careers are largely staked in these things. So when you're challenging these ideas, uh, the, their careers are being challenged. In contrast, the trustees and uh, and the parent representatives, uh, their focus is on they wanted to uh, to have things that uh, that make sense and they don't have a commitment to a particular ideology and. Uh, so uh, I think that largely explains why there was such a, a contrast in the response. Michael Zwangstra, education issues writer. He's a high school teacher in rural Manitoba, and he does a, a lot of research and writing with the Frontier Center for Public Policy, and he's the guy behind the upcoming Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. I can hear school uh, teachers, and I get the same discussion. A lot of my teacher friends sound an awful lot like you. 
They talk, though, about the curriculum consultants, uh, many of the academics in the College of Education, who say things are changing and you have to keep up with the times. The way we have always done things, uh, even parents and trustees who want so-called common sense education just aren't getting it. Well, one of the things, one of the things that I point out in, in my handbook that'll be coming out next month is that uh, there's nothing new about these ideas in education. And so you take something like 21st century learning. This is all the buzz in Saskatchewan right now. Uh, it really is just a fancy way of saying that we should have less focus on knowledge and facts and more emphasis on student self-discovery and discovery learning. Uh, that goes back to William Hurd Kilpatrick, who was a, a prominent education professor in the early 20th century. Uh, it even goes back farther to Jean-Jacques Rousseau so in the 1700s when he wrote the book Emily. So there's nothing new about 21st century learning and the ideas behind it, but it gets repackaged and resold and, uh, and then uh, uh, basically forced upon teachers. And does it make sense to, to discover the whole student at the expense of learning? No. The, evidence, the research evidence is very clear on this, that if you want to truly discover and to build on knowledge, you have to have knowledge that you're building on in the first place. And so if you want to have deep, critical thought, you need to know something about the topic at hand. So if you want to go on to more advanced mathematics, you need to master the basics, the standard algorithms and uh, multiplication uh, tables. Uh, if you want to do advanced thinking in terms of Canadian history and why did Confederation happen the way it did, you're not going to do any critical thinking if you don't know when confederation was and which provinces were involved and so in order to do higher order thinking you need to have the basics the knowledge in place first in order for that to happen but, but i go back to why then do we have these people still trying to evolve or rotate in things that are around for hundreds of years and don't work? Well, because it's it's an ideology, and it's an ideology that is dominant in education faculties where teachers are trained, uh, and it's dominant in, in the higher levels of school boards and within provincial education departments. And the ideology goes by many different names, but it's most commonly referred to as constructivism, this idea that students need to develop their own understanding of the world around them, to develop their own knowledge base. And so the emphasis there is on, uh, again, this, this idea of discovery. Now, even though the research evidence is clear that direct instruction in most cases is far more effective than discovery methods uh, when you're committed to an ideology when you're committed to a particular view of learning uh, you will hold to that uh, even when the evidence is pointing elsewhere and so this is just one of those uh, one of those cases so where do, it, so if you look at constructivism as the overall rubric then of an approach what are some of the symptoms or the manifestations? What are, what are we seeing that falls under that particular rubric of, of thought? Well, one very simple one, and I think a lot of parents can relate to this, would be math that doesn't make sense. Uh, when you have a math textbook such as, ironically, Math Makes Sense and Math Focus... Yeah, Math Makes Sense does not make sense it absolutely by any does objective not. view. But if a parent takes a look at one of those textbooks, so for example, you go through it and you look at the section where it teaches about, let's say, multiplication, uh, and they will find that there's almost no concrete examples. The emphasis is on students developing their own ways of doing multiplication. So instead of having a simple page or two showing, here's how multiplication works the most efficient way, now we're going to do some practice examples and move from there, instead, they get this fuzzy math, uh, which does not have, does not show the basics, you don't learn the standard algorithms, and students are confused. When, you're, when you have parents who are engineers and accountants that can't figure out their kid's grade three math assignment, that's usually a sign that there's something wrong. Michael Zwagster is here, education writer, school teacher, and uh, the guy behind the uh, publication coming up called The Parent's Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. Do you have any questions as we get another school year ready to go, whether it is 
a grading system that uh, doesn't want percentages, whether it is a marking system that doesn't want fails or zeros. These are the sorts of issues that Michael Swagster has written about extensively. And join the conversation. Is there something this year you would like to see done differently in your kid's school? one 332 8255 I'm John Gormley. Join the conversation. Here on News Talk Radio, I'm John Gormley. Michael Zweigstra's here, a high school teacher in Manitoba. A guy from Yorkton originally writes for the Frontier Center on Public Policy. And you're still in civic politics too, aren't you? I am. I'm on city council in Steinbeck, and I'm still deputy mayor. It's an election year this year, so uh, I'm uh, I'm in campaign mode when what I'm in Steinbeck. What the hell are you doing back here? Get back to Steinbeck, Manitoba, and <laughs> shake hands. And I'll be doing that. Job. All right, Zweigstra has written uh, The Parent's Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. It's coming out soon. But anytime Michael Zweigstra is by, it is a great opportunity to look at some of the education myths, for example. And he is also a guy who is an outspoken supporter of standardized testing. Now, every time I ever write a column on standardized testing, I get wolf-packed by indignant teachers. How dare you? Well, standardized testing happens to make sense, and it's done in a lot of places. We'll talk to him about that. But if you want to join the conversation, kids getting back to school and the issues of education, it's one 332 8255 Tom, you're on with Michael Zwagstra on your daughter in primary school. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, last, she was in grade 2 last year, and she got a letter sent home saying that she was learning the alphabet names. Now, I knew alphabets had sounds, but I've been out of school for a long time. I kind of like know what they named them. The alphabet names? The alphabet names, yeah. I never, that was what it said, alphabet names. I didn't know they'd named them since I was there. Uh, th- that would be new to me. I, I, I know the letter names, uh, ABC, that's pretty straightforward. So that's, uh, hopefully that's what she's learning. Tom, did you, oh, did I, you, I, I hope so, but did you know, inquire further as to what they were doing with this? Well, I'm going to go in this year. It was, it was at the end of the year, and I didn't have a chance. But this year I'm going to go in and just ask them exactly what they're what, what, what they're teaching them. Because, I mean, I know they have sounds, like you said, A, B, C, D, but I didn't know they'd actually named them. Yeah, well, hopefully the teacher meant sounds. Maybe she or he referred to them as names on the alphabet or not calling them letters or something, but we'll see. Uh, Education myths. Uh, Let's talk about standardized testing. Is the opposition to this in the minds of, I don't know if it's so many teachers are just the vocal ones, but... Why this opposition to standardized testing? And is there some myth-making going on here? Uh, there is. And uh, uh, when you ask uh, regular teachers, there's a, there's a split in opinion. Yes, there are some regular teachers who oppose standardized testing, but there's also plenty who support it. And uh, the opposition, uh, I would view, is largely ideological, uh, and it comes primarily from uh, teachers' unions. And uh, to be blunt, uh, standardized testing, they fear because it's, it can be used as an, account, as an accountability tool. They're worried that it's going to be used to evaluate teachers, they're worried it's going to reduce a teacher's autonomy in the classroom. Uh, the irony here is that if you use standardized testing properly and you use it in balance, it actually can enhance teacher autonomy because it's an opportunity for teachers to demonstrate that they are following their curriculum and that they are teaching effectively. And uh, so actually standardized testing could be very beneficial for, for regular teachers. But the blowback is so significant. I mean, the provincial government here has never been too afraid when it does the right thing to do the right thing. They backed off. 
because they couldn't stand the heat. Well, it's uh, the blowback wasn't surprising. I mean, again, teachers unions are, uh, and it's, Saskatchewan is no exception. They're very well organized. Uh, they get their message out, and uh, they don't uh, they they don't give up in terms of their opposition. And uh, so it is unfortunate that the government backed away from it because uh, there are many good reasons to have standardized testing. The problem also is that many of the groups that, in theory, support standardized testing, such as the school boards association, were very tepid in their support. And so you have fierce opposition from the teachers' union and only moderate support from some of the other groups. So hence, a political calculation is made to, uh, uh, to move away from it. Other educational myths. What are some of the more common ones we as parents are hearing? One of the most common ones that we hear is that uh, everyone has multiple intelligences. This is based on Howard Gardner's theory that came out in the 1980s. This is accepted as gospel within uh, within many schools. This idea that there are eight different intelligences. You have logical, mathematical, naturalist intelligence, linguistic intelligence. So everyone is intelligent in something. And so then teachers are supposed to design their instruction to uh, accommodate each intelligence. There's just one problem with this theory. It's not actually supported by the actual evidence. Psychologists outside of departments of education don't believe in this theory because there's no empirical evidence for it. But that doesn't stop uh, schools and uh, and principals and uh, superintendents from pushing it really hard. Okay, so what is the, outside of curriculum development in schools, what's the take on multiple intelligence. Well, the, the basic, uh, this fits in with this constructivist idea, because again, if everyone is developing their own knowledge and their own, their own understanding, uh, now we make it even more individualized. So now we try to accommodate the fact that someone, the reason they're not good at math is they don't have mathematical intelligence, but they might have naturalist intelligence. And so, uh, I'm not kidding here, there are some people who recommend that to help some people learn, let's say, their punctuation, if they have naturalist intelligences, uh, assign an animal name to each punctuation, because then that'll help them learn it. Um, or students with musical intelligence should sing the different punctuation points. Uh, and again, it's, this, it's, it's all to fit in this, uh, this, this multiple intelligences philosophy. And what I hear, of course, is nobody loses, nobody fails, because everybody gets the ribbon. Yep. to participate because we all have this kind of, each of us is intelligent. Sure, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of de-emphasizing uh, things such as verbal skills and math and reading, like some of these basic things you have to master. When you focus on this multiple intelligences idea, you, you tend to de-emphasize those things because you go, well, everyone's got all these other intelligences. Again, it's an interesting theory and not supported by the empirical evidence. Michael Zweigstra is here until the bottom of the hour. Uh, Joe, uh, what did you want to say about math? Hey, Michael, what we got to do is get back to the way it was back in the old days. I got a book in my hands, the Manitoba Arithmetic, book number two. So it means there was two books that year, grade five, 1931. And this thing is 200 pages of math problems and how to solve them. And it's not simple stuff. It's just stuff you have to get drilled in to understand it, not, not regurgitate what you've been taught. Let's talk more about so-called drill and kill. That's what the teachers and uh, the anti-times uh, table crowd call them. Let's talk more about that in a minute. This is News Talk Radio. I'm John Gormley. Good to have you here. Michael Zwagstra is in. Michael is a guy who we spent a lot of time with over the years. He writes for the Frontier Center on Public Policy. He is a high school teacher in rural Manitoba, and he has an upcoming uh, publication out called... The Parent's Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. And he was pointing out earlier, this. Uh, now this was a rural conference you spoke at in Saskatoon not that long ago. Yes, it was the, the National Congress on Rural Education. I was one of the, uh, the workshop leaders. 
Okay, so you were able to get enough of a sense, both uh, good from parents and uh, trustees, and the negative blowback from the school principal, the school superintendents, and the curriculum consultants, that you got a feeling some of these points obviously are resonating with people. Yes, I did. And one thing that was uh, told to me very clearly by uh, by trustees and parent council representatives is that they would like to see changes made, uh, but they don't know how to how to communicate it. They don't know how to respond to the edgy babble that keeps getting thrown at them. They don't know how to respond to the claim that research shows uh, that uh, method X works. And so the idea of the handbook is to provide an easy reference guide with the research sources clearly cited uh, to show where you can go to get the uh, the evidence you need to uh, to push back against the edge of Babel. Michael Zweigstra is here. Okay, here's a text. Uh, Michael was just laughing aloud, as was I, because I think this may be speaking for thousands of listeners. Uh, 306, 306. John, pretty sure a huge chunk of teachers will not call in, although quietly in the classrooms and staff rooms, we agree with your guest. But speaking out could make you a marked person with the administration. And my hope is that many of the parents who find these new methods confusing and unrealistic will call in with vigor. Alias, John Doe from Nowhereville. <laughs> Common? That is. There are lots of teachers who uh, who agree with the ideas that I'm putting out there because I've heard from many of them in different parts of the country. Uh, but they're worried about being targeted by those who are in authority over them. And so as a result, uh, they quietly uh, go into their classrooms, close the door and just do the best they can. It's a pity because, you know, and you make the point, teachers, you know, we, we have these debates at universities over tenure. Well, through collective agreements, through long standard practice, teachers have tenure and assuming uh, they perform their job properly a teacher has freedom to stand up and speak. Uh, Teachers do have the right to do that. Now, of course, uh, your job can be protected, but obviously there's ways of making a teacher's life miserable if a a school division wishes to do that, and so I certainly recognize that. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, teachers do have the right to express their opinion on these types of issues because we're talking largely about uh, provincial policy, and teachers have every right to be uh, politically involved and to express opinions publicly. The holding back of kids or the advancement of kids through what's called social promotion, is that a challenge for teachers? Uh, It is, and uh, because what happens is that when a student moves on to the next grade or is moved into a course that they're not, uh, that they haven't mastered the the previous skills that they need, uh, then they're going to be far behind. And so what happens is you have a classroom where you have some students that are roughly at the level they need to be, and then you have a whole bunch of students that are not remotely at that level. And that creates a huge challenge uh, for the teacher in front of the classroom. Now, of course, uh, the argument is, is that the other side will put out there as well, the teacher should just differentiate his or her instruction and individualize everything. That's all great in theory when you're not actually uh, teaching any actual students and you're just in your ivory tower. Uh, but practically speaking, uh, it obviously does make a teacher's job considerably harder. Yeah, and I suppose the, contru- the constructivists see all of this as tailor-made because every child has their own skills and their own strengths and maybe your skill in grade five isn't grade five math absolutely and if so if we're not going to if we if we're not going to identify specific knowledge and skills that everyone needs to have if we're going to de-emphasize that as constructive as do uh well then of course you're going to automatically uh, pass as many people as possible because uh it's it's not about knowing anything in particular Michael Zwagstras here. Caller Joe, just as we were heading into the top of the hour, uh, talked about this old uh, arithmetic book he found from the 1930s, and it was volume two, uh, used in Manitoba at the times. Uh, The the idea of learning, and in the case of numbers and uh, numerical strength, multiplication tables. I mean, you've talked about the, what was the new book, the... uh, 
1984 name, Math, Making Math, Math That Makes Sense. Math That Makes Sense, yeah, yes. Which is sort of an Orwellian, because yep. when you read Math That Makes Sense, I mean, a few mm-hmm. years ago when Saskatchewan uh, adopted this folly, and we still haven't backed away from it. We still use it in, in this province. You know, we, we sat down with the, uh, was it front-end averaging or whatever, front-end estimation, where you could take numbers and actually have kids estimate them to me nothing remotely close to what you've ever learned about rounding of numbers. And somehow this math doesn't make sense, but it's the idea that multiplication tables and rote learning of numbers is wrong. It's drill and kill, they call it. That is the uh, the term that is often used. And so what happens is you have, uh, when students don't learn these things by memory, then obviously they're going to have trouble going on to higher order math. Because if you have to think to yourself, what is six times four? And you have to go do, figure it out. Obviously, you're not going to uh, be able to do more advanced math questions. And so you need to have these basics mastered first. And this is what the research evidence shows. Uh, it is very clear on this, that if you want to do higher order math, the more advanced math, learn the basics. It is absolutely essential. Michael. Swagster's here. Peter, a question of kids in school, sir. Yeah, the, I, I'm enjoying your guest. It's a great topic. Uh, one of the things that seems to me to be quite prevalent is that uh, um, there's, a, there's a, 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 a lot of teachers that want to teach the basics but aren't allowed to. And, and the point about um, being afraid to speak up as teachers is, is certainly, I'm hearing that from a lot of teachers, that they just, they'll say things to me that they certainly wouldn't say to colleagues for fear that it gets back to uh, the hires up. So my thought is that the basics, you're building the basics for anything. It's like building a house. You have to have a foundation, a solid one, to jump off from. Otherwise, you've got nothing to go forward with. Well, and I would certainly echo what uh, what you're saying, both in regards to how a lot of teachers feel, and also in regards to the importance of these basics. And this is this is true in any subject area that uh, in order to in order to be able to go on to the next level of something, you have to master the previous level. You have to have certain knowledge in your head. Um, in fact, cognitive psychologists have a term for this. We, we call it uh, cognitive load. That if you when you're thinking about something, if you have some of those basics mastered, your your mind is now freed up to go on to more advanced concepts, uh, more advanced topics within that concept. And so, uh, however, if you're struggling with with the, trying to figure out those basics, your cognitive load is so high that you're not able to go on to the next level. And so uh, what is very clear is that if you have those basics in place, uh, you can now move on. And so when we, we, we disparage rote learning, which I think is unfortunate because rote learning, when used properly, makes deeper thinking possible. They are not in competition with each other. You need both and you need rote learning and higher order thinking. Michael Zwagster is here. He is the guy, and not only as a high school teacher in Manitoba, but writer with the Frontier Center for Public Policy on Matters Education. Uh, he has a new thing out uh, a couple of weeks from now called the Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. And we'll get back. We'll talk to him actually about some of those details. But we're having a quick bit of a preview today. Um, so what are some of the ways we equip parents? Because clearly there's a disconnect. If you've got teachers in the staff room saying, you know, we think this, the parents all think this, and we're being held hostage by the Ministry of Education and their consultants and their deputy ministers and their ADMs and the local school board where you have the directors of education, 
that's a very small group of people. How do we let them do this to our kids? They're a very small group of people, but they're a very influential group because they hold the levers of power. And uh, if you want to move up in the hierarchy of education, you normally are, are often promoted based on the degree to which you agree with this uh, with this ideology and this way of thinking. So we begin by pushing back, by empowering parents, by empowering teachers, uh, by, by, for example, what this handbook does is, is dealing with some of these common questions and then say, what does the evidence actually Actually show, and so uh, is there evidence that that uh, that memorization is important? Absolutely, there is. So I outline it uh, in part of the report. I look at the topic of uh, direct instruction, which is a traditional teacher-centered methodology, uh, versus the discovery inquiry learning, and I compare those. The research evidence is astoundingly clear that direct instruction for most students in most cases is more effective, especially, and you can't have proper education without it. So the evidence is clear, and so. So by putting it in this handbook, by outlining it, by footnoting it, by showing where the research is, I'm hoping to empower um, parents and teachers and other concerned people uh, with the ability to start pushing back. one 8255 We're back with more calls. Your thoughts on empowering parents and kids as we head back to another school year. This is News Talk Radio. John Gormley, Michael Zweigstra is here. He is the writer with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And the guy behind a, an upcoming publication, we'll be chatting about it a little bit later on in September, called The Parent's Guide to Common Sense Education. Let's get back to the calls. Uh, Jack in Lumsden, you have a question for Michael. Well, really good topic and speaker today, John, and I just wanted to pose a question to him. I've been concerned uh, running into uh, young teachers who have dropped out of that career and are are leaving after three, four, five years, they're saying we're doing more and more with less and less. We're not doing what we were trained to do, and they're leaving, and we got a problem with overloading the classrooms, and I wondered what the comments might be about that. Well, Jack, I think that's a that's a great question because this is this is a real issue. Uh, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we can stop. Uh, we need to stop um, overloading teachers with these new ideas, and so we create these unrealistic expectations that teachers are going to create learning plans to meet everyone's learning style and create multiple lesson plans for the same group of kids. Um, let teachers do what they're trained to do, which is a, which is actually teach. Um, stop expecting them to do things that uh, that go well beyond the purview of teaching. And obviously, uh, some of that means that additional resources are needed. But at the end of the day, a lot of teachers' workload and stress load would go down uh, if they didn't uh, have to be uh, forced to use these new ideas that they learn at their in-services. Uh, I think a lot of teachers, their stress load would go down significantly. So this whole constructivism that we find in the Saskatchewan Ministry of Education, that we find in the Saskatoon, Regina, and the rural school divisions, this is layering on top of teachers more of this idea that each individualized student's going to learn in individually different ways, all of a sudden that becomes 25, 28, whatever number of kids, I'm thinking times 28 the amount of work. Absolutely, and it burns teachers out. And uh, because you, this idea that you're going to have every student, you know, individually recreate the multiplication algorithm or uh, the, the, their their favorite, their best way of solving uh, you know, the subtraction questions or learning scientific concepts, uh, teachers, it's just not possible to seriously think that each student is going to do their own thing on everything. You need to have direct instruction. So yes, that does mean you need time where the teacher is actually in front of the room explaining things. What There is nothing wrong, and the research evidence clearly supports that there's nothing wrong with the teacher going in front of the room and saying, I'm going to show you the most efficient way of doing this particular problem, and then I'm going to get you guys to practice it so you guys master it too, because then we can go on to the more advanced topic. 
Now, what you just described is what every one of us grew up with. That's not happening today? Well, it depends on the individual teacher and, and, and the school, but certainly that is strongly discouraged. You go to a faculty of education, you're told to be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. Uh, what I just expressed is fiercely opposed by most, most education professors. And so, yes, many teachers still, of course, use some direct instruction, right. but they're pressured not to in many cases. The inclusion and the developing of knowledge, you talk about the relationship, and you're a, a history guy. For example, reading. We all want kids to read, and I think all of us who are bookworms and book nuts know the great value of reading. But your argument is you've got to be able to build some other things into reading we have, we have kids to do. One of the best ways to improve uh, a student's reading comprehension is to give them knowledge, to increase their overall knowledge base. Because the more you know about a particular topic, the more likely it is you're going to be able to understand an article about it. And so, for example, uh, I, I teach high school now, but I used to teach grade 5, and it always struck me that students who were into sports had very little difficulty reading articles about baseball and hockey that were way above their so-called reading level. And the reason is very simple, because they knew lots about the topic. Similarly, if you know lots about history, lots about science, you're actually able to read those textbooks and those articles. However, if you don't have that knowledge base, uh, you're going to struggle. Because if you have to go to Google or to the dictionary for every other word in the article, um, you're not going to be able to read it. So one of the best ways to improve reading comprehension is to expand the knowledge base of students. And that means focusing on facts and concepts, which of course is the opposite of constructivism. Michael, always great having you by. Keep in touch and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much, John. Michael Zweigstra, high school teacher, educational writer for the Frontier Center on Public Policy and upcoming, you better make sure you grab the Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. It's coming out soon. This is News Talk Radio.